Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Angela Ledgerwood and this is Lit Up, a podcast about books, writers, life and love and all things literary. This episode comes to you live from Neuer House in New York, where I was lucky enough to interview comedian, host of The Daily Show and writer Trevor Noah about his memoir, Born a Crime. It chronicles his childhood growing up in apartheid South Africa, and to say that it's a special and important book is a huge understatement. I hope you love this conversation as much as I did, and you spread the word about this uh, riveting and really important book. Angela, Trevor, the floor is yours. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for uh, hanging out, guys. I appreciate it. And we've got you right from taping The Daily Show, so I'm hoping that we have your post-show adrenaline, like we're still on the... Oh, these days I don't feel like it's adrenaline. I feel like it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a slow rage that, that, that fades by the oh. time I get to bed. That's what it is. Well, I know this time last week or today, a lot of us watched Hillary Clinton's speech. Yeah. And I just wanted to say thank you for the work you've done just in this week in kind of making the America maybe we thought we knew make sense to us again. Thank you. Um, but we are here to find out about the man kind of before maybe America, you know, before we got introduced to you. And I think the best way is to you, for you to speak in your own words. Ooh. And would you mind reading... Um, this passage. Of course. I think you know the one. How far do you want me to read? I think from here. So, oh, I'm so sorry. I figured that, and to the, there. Ah, Don't you okay. think? Okay. Great. So this is, I mean, this is setting up everything really in the beginning of the book. Where most children are a proof of their parents' love, I was the proof of their criminality. The only time I could be with my father was indoors. If we left the house, he'd have to walk across the street from us. 
My mom and I used to go to Joubert Park all the time. It's basically the central park of Johannesburg. Beautiful gardens, a zoo, a giant chessboard with human-sized pieces that people would play. My mother tells me that once while I was a toddler, my dad tried to go with us. We were in the park. He was walking a good bit away from us. And I ran after him, screaming, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. People started looking. He panicked and ran away. I thought it was a game, and I kept chasing him. I couldn't walk with my mother either. A light-skinned child with a black woman would raise too many questions. When I was a newborn, she could wrap me up and take me anywhere, but very quickly, that was no longer an option. You see, I was a giant baby, an enormous child. When I was one, you would have thought I was two. When I was two, you'd have thought I was four. There was no way to hide me. My mom, same as she'd done with her flat and with her maid's uniforms, found the cracks in the system. It was illegal to be mixed, to have a black parent and a white parent, but it was not illegal to be colored, to have two parents who were both colored. So my mom moved me around the world as a colored child. She found a creche in a colored area where she could leave me while she was at work. There was a colored woman named Queen who lived in our block of flats. When we wanted to go out to the park, my mom would invite her to go with us. Queen would walk next to me and act like she was my mother. And my mother would walk a few steps behind us, like she was the maid working for the colored woman. I've got dozens of pictures of me walking with this woman who looks like me, but who isn't my mother. And the black woman standing behind us who looks like she's photobombing the picture, well, that's my mom. When we didn't have a colored woman to walk with us, my mom would risk walking me on her own. She would hold my hand or carry me. But if the police showed up, she'd have to drop my hand and pretend I wasn't hers, like I was a bag of weed. Thank you. So how did your mom and dad meet? My mom and dad met in um, really part of the underground scene of South Africa. You know, at the time during apartheid, people's movement was restricted. Uh, you couldn't freely interact with uh, people of different races. And um, my mom, through this underground movement, met a man who was Portuguese, and he was renting out his apartment, and he didn't mind renting it out to a person of color, which was illegal. And my mom moved into this building, and uh, my dad lived in that building. And my mom tells me the story of how one day she was walking around the building, and then she was like, that guy? She's like, that's the guy I will break the law with. <laughs> and... Um, and that's how she met him. She just set out to start dating him. And in essence, that was like her form of protest. You know, there were three levels of protest in South Africa at the time because of these race laws. There, were, there was active protest and, uh, you know, there was active outside protest and there was passive. Active, active outside was people who left the country and went into exile. And they specifically set out to try and overthrow the apartheid government from the outside. Then there were those who ran an underground movement on the inside, and they protested and they fought. And then there were those, like my mom, who um, led a passive resistance, and they just broke the laws that related to race relations. And, you know, she got arrested many times for doing it. And I remember asking her, I said to her, you know, when you met my dad, weren't you afraid that the police could stop you? And she said to me, she was like, stop me how, baby? Stop me how? She's like, you can't police my panties. <laughs> and, and that's how my parents met. <laughs> and once you've read the book, you realize just how determined she is and, yes. in, and incredible. There is a part in the book where you say that her choice to have you was 
to begin um, a sense of belonging for herself, maybe that she hadn't had before. And that seems like something now that we women, we don't say, right? I'm going to have a child to find myself or find a home. But why hadn't she felt that belonging before? And how did she end up in Johannesburg? Well, my, my mom lived a very tough life. She grew up in a, in a family that was very poor. And so because of that, she had to spend most of her life growing up in the country. And, you know, she went through a life that was way tougher than mine. People think I struggled, but my mom went many nights without food. She had to live with 14 cousins. And, you know, they would have to fight over scraps that the adults didn't eat. Um, she would sometimes eat clay from the riverbed because that would line the stomach and make you, you know, keep you feeling full. Um, and so she lived in this world where she always fended for herself. She, she educated herself. She found work, working as a seamstress, and then went on to learn, you know, how to be a, a typist and work as a secretary. And what was really missing for my mom was a sense of belonging. Because she had always been alone, she felt like she wanted something that was hers, something that would always choose her, something that she definitively knew was 100% vested in her, and that's why she wanted a child. And so we, with my father, she didn't care about him being the father of the child. She just said, look, I want your sperm. We're going to make this kid. And he was like, I don't want to be a father. And she said, I didn't ask you if you want to be a father or not. I just said, I want your sperm, and I want this kid. And uh, he obliged, and she had me. And uh, immediately, she says, she realized very quickly she wanted something that would love her. And instead, she realized that a child is the most selfish thing you can ever give birth to in your world. You know, it takes years before there's anything reciprocal, sometimes never. And, and, and so she wanted something that belonged to her. Um, but what was great for me was uh, I was chosen. You know, from the very beginning, my mom set out to choose me. And I do believe that that's one of the greatest gifts you can give another human being is choosing them. We all set out to be chosen. It's the reason we pick our tribes and our friends and our families. and our, Like, the tribe is what we seek. No one wants to be an outsider, even if they claim it. Outsiders all claim each other. So you're outside, I'm also an outsider. We should hang out together. <laughs> and essentially, that was the big thing. She wanted something to choose her, but in that process, she ended up choosing me. And you've also said that you were raised by women, even though your dad was quite present in your life and your smoking hot granddad, <laughs> Temperance. Yes, Temperance Noah. But what was it like during um, the time you spent in Soweto with your grandma? How did she shape you? And then maybe kind of to segue into how Soweto was um, constructed as this very dark place. I mean, not dark in the, in the people itself, but by the apartheid government. Um. So growing up in, in, in South Africa, especially during the apartheid years, uh, meant that for the most part you lived in a matriarchal society if you were a person of color. You know, in black communities, uh, black men were sent off to go and work in the mines. They were sent off to go work in factories, and oftentimes they couldn't live in the places. They didn't have the permits to live where their families did, or the permits didn't afford their families the opportunity to live with them. And so many families were matriarchal in that they were raised by mothers and grandmothers. You know, sons were raised and taught to be men by the women. Fathers were seen intermittently. And 
So during that time, I lived with my mom and my grandmother, and we, that was the family, and my aunt and the next-door neighbor. And, you know, my grandmother's circle was all these strong women, different ages, fulfilling different uh, duties and, uh, in the community. And, and that, that was the only world that I knew. You know, like my mom always used to say to me, she said, I'm, I'm your father and your mother. I'm going to be both of those people because that's what I've been forced to be. And God, right? Yeah, yeah, that was it. Like my mom always said to me, she said, uh, she said I only have one husband and that's God. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to be everything that you need to be in this world. And I think one of the greatest things that I appreciated was growing up in that world gave me, a, I guess, a, a connection with my mom that maybe I wouldn't normally have had. You know, I only, I only knew women's things growing up. You know, I, I can buy shoes for a woman faster than I can buy shoes for myself. I, I appreciate a good heel. I, uh, I understand fundamentally women's fashion, uh, but n- nothing else. Like, I was sitting at home watching Murder, She Wrote with my mom. I was, you know, I was living in her world, and that's the only world I knew. And there was no man to tell me, hey, that's a girly thing to do. I was just like, this is what we do in my family, you know, and I loved it. I, I had a great time doing that. Some of the things I love most in the book is that, I mean, you did sound like a terror. I was. I a terror, was. like yes. a gorgeous, like sweet, like. Oh, one, I wasn't sweet. I was really? not sweet at all. No, I was. I was the worst child you you would ever come across. Not in like a like I wasn't one of those little shits you see running around like throwing tantrums and stuff. No, I was silent and deadly. I, I was that kid you did not want hanging out with your kids. You know when they'd go bad influence? I was the bad influence. I was, um, I mean, in kindergarten, I got into trouble for convincing another kid. Basically, there was a kid who all the girls liked. I, you know, I honed in on this very quickly, and I realized that I could use him. He wasn't very smart, but he was very, very good-looking for, I guess, a five-year-old. <laughs> and... All the girls liked him, and so I convinced him to put on a striptease in exchange for all, like, the gingerbread cookies from the... Like, we used to have a cooking, like, a little baking class. And so I was like to all the other girls, if you give me your cookies, I will get him naked for you. And then I, in exchange, said to him, I'll give him two cookies. And he was like, that's a great deal. And so, you know, when it all fell apart, the teachers were like, who put this together? It was me. And I got into. I was. I was that kid. You know. I. Uh, I'm also the reason the house burned down. I didn't burn the house down, but I'm a reason. Playing with matches. I wasn't playing oh, with the wasn't. matches. I was working with the matches. Oh. See, these are the finer technicalities that I feel people miss. Uh, I. I liked fire. I think it's an interesting thing. Uh, you know. I don't think we've fully explored its possibilities. <laughs> and so I was. You know, engaging the scientist in my brain and. During that process, as scientific experiments sometimes do, it went wrong, and a house burned down, which is a small price to pay, I believe, in the pursuit of science. I think <laughs> one house. You guys didn't even know that the house burned down. So, you Wait, know. was that one of the times that your mother wrote you a letter or that you had to exchange letters because otherwise it got too fire and intense? No, so, so this, this was my mom always hated that I could outsmart her in a conversation. Now, I wasn't smarter than her, but I could think on the fly. Uh, My mom is a fantastic writer. So what she did at some point was she said, we no longer are going to have these conversations. You always beat me on technicalities. So what we're going to do from now on is handle this via correspondence. (laughs) 
And so she would write me letters. So if I didn't do my chores, she would write me a letter and say, you know, dear Trevor, I'm disappointed in you this week. You failed to do your chores. You were meant to do the dishes and you were meant to sweep the house and do the garden and you didn't do this, do that, but you still want your pocket money or you want us to go out on the weekend. And because you haven't done this, I cannot oblige you know, and then I would reply to her, and I thought I was really smart and super formal, so I'd be like, to whom it may concern. <laughs> I'd be like, to whom it may concern, dear mom, uh, I have noticed and noted your grievances, but I must point out that the dishes that you're speaking about were dishes that came to be after I was, and I would like write this whole superfluous email where I was like, oh, I'm so genius, I'm so, and then, and then we would do this for like weeks on end, and I would get a mail, and it would be like under my door, this was, this was obviously when I was older, and we, we had now moved to our own house, and you know, I'd just find like a little note with my name and I'd read through and I'd furiously get on a typewriter and I'd be like, clack, 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 clack. And then I'd put it under her door and then like just a week of that back and forth. And when we'd see each other, there would be no conversation about the letters. So we'd just sit in front of the TV and we'd be like, oh, look, the A-team is on. And then we'd just smile, just smile. And then we'd go back to our room and read the letter and be like, ah. Wait, but that's, that's oh. how we communicated. Well, hers always seemed, from what I know, to have a proverb... Or a psalm, yes. you know, as a kind of um, thesis point on which to muse. Did you pull from the Bible as well? We, we back? both we both did, but in different ways. So my mom was and still is extremely religious. We still talk every single day, every single morning. She sends me messages. Um, she emails me, and I I taught her how to use email because she used to text. And texting costs a lot of money. You know, we don't really have unlimited plans in the such in South Africa. So I taught her, I was like, hey, you know, you can send emails instead of texting and spending all this money. And so I taught her use email, and then she found out it was free and unlimited, and <laughs> she used it accordingly. So every morning, she still she sends me an email, and it's always a scripture and what the scripture means and how you can apply it to your life and, and breaking it down, and in a very analytical way, you know. My mom doesn't just look at the Bible on the, on the surface, you know, the, 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 just the plane of the story or the, the, the way it seems. And so even as a kid, she'd do the same thing. She'd go, hey, you know, she'd re- chat, quote the chapter. She'd be like, Matthew, you know, listen to your parents because your parents are speaking to you, you know, using the voice of God and be good to your parents for then you shall be good to the earth. And then I would reply and then I'd be like, oh, the Bible also tells us to question everything and... You know, Daniel in the lion's den showed us that sometimes you have to stand up in the face of opposition. It was just like, it was just basically me BSing with my mom, but she she always came out on top. Okay, so describe a typical Sunday in your house. A typical Sunday? Yeah, yeah. A typical Sunday in my house was church. Um, We went to church at least three times a day, maybe five so every Sunday we'd wake up and we'd head out to church. And my mom, because she was so good at exploring worlds that weren't necessarily hers, she um, also wanted pieces of religion that were separated. So my mom found that in different churches, people applied themselves to the religion differently. You know, so we would go to three distinctly different churches. There was a multicultural church that was very popular and very, you know, like, like you, you see them today, like those, those very hip and, you know, they're playing like rock music and there's like karaoke on the screen type thing. And so we'd go to one of those churches um, and then we would go to the white church, which was literally, there was just white people and us. 
And my mom loved that church because she said, like, white people always, like, analyze the scripture in depth. Uh, very boring, but very analytical. And then we would always end the, the day at black church because my mom said that's where you could feel the spirit. You know, that's where the, the passion was. And people would be getting demons kicked out of them. And it was evangelical and it was powerful. And every single Sunday, that was our journey. Like, every single Sunday, that was me. And black church was the hardest because it was the longest. Like, if you've never been to a black church, you don't know what I mean. But if you have, it never ends. You go in and you just sit there. And I always used to think it was because black people had so much more to pray for. You know, it's like white people just come in and leave because they're like, yeah, shit is pretty good. Uh, <laughs> black people are like, no, no, we need more. Keep going, keep going. And another thing, Jesus, and another thing. So that's, that was the world that we stayed in, you know. And, and my mom loved it. I, it gave us a community. It gave us a place where... Essentially, we found a tribe of belonging because in the church, there was a very limited feeling of being an outsider in terms of your race or your, 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 um, your class or any of those barriers. They were wiped away because you, you were all under Jesus, and that was the only thing that mattered. Well, and in your book, you mention how you would pray for a lot of grannies. Yes. And that because of your skin they thought that your pray- prayers might be heard louder. Yes. My, so to, to understand some of these stories, South Africa, and, and you know, that's why I made sure that in the book I have interstitials that really lay it out for you. Mm. But race was such a powerful tool in the country, and it was laid out in such a systemic and systematic way that people truly believed a lot of the things that they were led to believe by the government. And one of those things was that white people were superior. And I experienced this in my own family. My grandmother, who would hear me praying, and because I prayed in English, she always felt that like God was more likely to hear me. You know, because the Bible we were reading was written in English, you know, because people were taught religion in English. And so whenever we'd have little prayer meetings at my grandmother's house, all these grannies would come over, old African ladies, and everyone would pray in a circle, and then my grand would say, now you pray for us. You know, you pray and you do that thing you do. And I would just pray in English, and everyone was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you know, Jesus is getting this one. This is, we can feel it. People were just like, this is, you can feel the Holy Spirit coming now. And it was, it was funny, but it's also sad at the same time to realize you're living in a world where, uh, you know, that conditioning has been so conditioned that even the people who are being oppressed um, in some ways place the oppressor on a pedestal. You know, you still see that happening today. You, know, you still see that in America. You know, there are people always go, you know, racism or, or those ideas come top down. Same thing goes for misogyny. You always assume that it's men going misogyny down, and that's that is true. But then sometimes you find it happening in a in a more silent way, a more dangerous way, and that is where the people who are oppressed have been so oppressed that they've been convinced that their oppression is necessary or correct. And so you'll have women going, "Oh no, I don't want a woman president because I I don't think women." can run this, you know, you, you get black people saying, oh, I don't think a black man should be doing that job because I, I don't think black men are, are the right thing. And, you know, the white man is what we defer to. And so in that setting, that was something I learned in my own family, in a space where you would think there would be, you know, complete equality. 
Well, there's a phrase in the book that speaks to what you're talking about that is difficult to say, and it's perfect racism. Yes. And it's a very confronting thing to read, but it's so important that we all understand what this system sought out, you know, to achieve. And I was so ashamed to read that, you know, the, well, of course, one of the places they went to study perfect racism was Australia. Yeah. And um, it was America and the Netherlands. Yep. And can you talk a little more about that? And also, you so eloquently in the book, and you touched on it as well, how language for you both um, was a bridge and also how it is, was used and how it's used to um, divide people. Well, that was the genius of apartheid. And I, I do call it genius because even though it was evil, it truly was impressive. How do you control a country when, as a population, you only make up around 6%? That was the challenge that white people faced in South Africa. You're a tiny percentage of the population, but you need to govern and oppress the remaining 90-odd percent. And... What they did was they set off around the world studying racism. They came to America, looked at how America had conducted its racism, and they took notes, and they went to Australia and did the same thing. They went to the Netherlands, and they, went and they, and they, they looked for all different types of racisms and what worked and what didn't work, looked at the failings and the successes, came back to South Africa, and then created apartheid, which was a perfect system in that it accounted for every little discrepancy that normally slips through the cracks. For instance, in America, if you were born of a black parent and a white parent, then under the one-drop rule, you were considered black. It seems like a simple system until you realize that what that means is black people are creating more black people, but any other mix is creating more black people. So essentially, at some point, these people will outgrow you and you've now created a majority that's going to come after you. So what they did in South Africa was they said, no, if black and white mixes, that makes a new race, a race that we call colored, which is my skin tone, and it has nothing to do with black, it's its own culture, and they would take you away. If, if I was spotted out, so I could have been taken away, sent off to an orphanage and separated from my parents because that was a crime. Um, and so what they did was they, they found a way to, to, to you know, fix all of those cracks in a system that, that really needed to be impenetrable. And they even found a way to separate black people. So they went, you're not just black. What is your tribe? What is your specific area of blackness? We focus on that. And then the true genius of apartheid came in the fact that they convinced every single group that the reason they were being held back was because of the other groups. And that's where the power came from. You know, that's something that you still see in America today. You see people who truly believe that the reason they are in the position they are in is because of somebody else who oftentimes is in the same position or in a position that's even worse than theirs. Uh, and they don't realize that oftentimes you're being oppressed from the top down. But the top tells you that it's in an area that you can, you can punch towards. And that's, and that's what people do. And language was one of the greatest barriers. You separate the people. And you also make sure that they don't understand each other. You make sure that people don't communicate on the same wavelength. Because that's fundamentally what language is. Nelson Mandela said it the best. He said, you talk to a man in a language he understands, you speak into his mind. 
You speak to a man in his language and you're speaking to his heart. And that's true. And in South Africa, they made sure they didn't just separate the people, they separated the languages to create that barrier between people where one man could look at another man and not understand what he was saying and that would further reinforce the fact that they were never meant to be together. Well, before we run on that and apply it to the chaos we're in now, can you talk about being in school and how um, that you're going to Catholic school um, was one thing and then when you moved to a different school, how you almost had an awakening of your own country that you hadn't had before? Well, I was, I was, um, I was lucky in, in that because my mom had afforded herself certain opportunities by you know, studying and, and learning things that really she wasn't allowed to learn, uh, she got to work in a, a pharmaceutical uh, company, and uh, it was an international company called ICI. And what my mom did was she uh, managed to get me a, a scholarship. And so through that scholarship, I was able to go to a private school when I was really young. And that was really great for my foundational learning. You know, it gave me an education that no one in my family had ever received. Um, but at some point, the, the company closed down. Our, we didn't have a scholarship. We had no chance of affording that school. And so I had to move to a public school. And this public school completely shocked me because I came to realize when in a private school, essentially because we all had the exact same footing, race for all intents and purposes was eliminated. And that's where you come to realize that fundamentally race is a construct. You know, it's governed by what we see, but it's reinforced by what we have. You know, so when people become rich, and you see this in society... When people become rich, they're less likely to see color. They just go, that's my friend, that's my friend, because we have the same, we do the same. And what I realized when I left the private school and went to a public school was all of a sudden I walked into a school where on the playground the black kids were in one group, the white kids were in another group, Indian kids were in their own section, and there was no mixing. And I had come from a place where everyone mixed. And I walked in, and it was the strangest thing because I knew... Everyone, I knew every group, I had associated with every group, but all of a sudden the world forced me to choose. The, the world that we live in often doesn't allow us to seamlessly code switch between different groups. You know, we want people to fit into one category, one box. And so when I got to that school, I realized that. And that's, that's where language was my greatest gift because I could speak languages that some people couldn't. I, you know, I speak six languages now, and back when I was a, when I was a kid, I spoke four. Um, and so I was able to communicate with people. And that was, that was one of the quickest ways to bring the barriers down. I'd meet a kid, they'd go, you're not like me. And I'd speak to them in their language. And immediately you'd see a person's eyes open wide, go like, Where, how do you know my language? Well, you, that means you're like me. And I'd go, yeah, we're the same. And my favorite was, because race was top down in South Africa, as it is in most places in terms of lightness, you know, probably the vestige of, uh, of colonization, most people who were lighter didn't bother to learn languages of uh, the black people in the country. And so when I would speak it, it was like a magic trick. You know, people would be like, what, why are you speaking our language? And I would say, because it's, it's my language. And the kid, one kid asked me, he's like, what do, you, what do you mean your language? And I said, I'm, I'm black. And he was like, no, you're, you're not. He's like, have you not seen yourself? And I was like, oh, no, no, I see what you're saying. But trust me, I'm, I'm very black. 
And he was like, I, I, don't, I just don't believe it. He's like, you're, you're, you're not like black, black. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm black. And he, so and he was like, but who, where are your parents? And I was like, my mom is black. And he's like, yeah, well, my mom's black. I was like, you see, it was the same thing. He's like, how do you have a black mom? I was like, do you have a black mom? And you must remember, growing up, I didn't think of race at all until this point. My mom was black. My dad was white. I never thought of it like that, though. I just knew that that was my mom, that was my dad. In my world, you know, fathers were white and then uncles were black. That was pretty much it. I was just like, yeah, that's, that's how it works. And so that was the first time when I came to realize the real world that I was living in. Well, and the, your one-man show that really bloated you on, you know, so you were so known in your own country, was called Daybreaker. And how does that title relate to what you've been talking about? Well, it was, uh, sorry to correct you, it was Daywalker. Oh, Daywalker. That's fine, No, that's fine. I knew that. Everyone knew switches that. it, but it's, um, uh, that was me, I mean, it was a comedic take on it all, but it was essentially me exploring, as I do in the book, the idea of, uh, you know, transcending race, moving between these worlds seamlessly. Uh, people genuinely used to be shocked when they'd see me in certain environments. If I was at a family funeral, I, I was like a myth at times. You know, it would be a black family funeral, and and then I, you know, extended family would be pointing, going, "What? What is that? Who is that? Is that an albino? Who is that at the family gathering? What? What is this child doing here?" And some of them had just heard of me, but they didn't know that I was a real thing. And as crazy as it sounds, it was beyond most people's comprehension that I could even exist. The fact that a white man and a black woman could have a child together, that just didn't seep into their minds. So f for most people where I live, they were just like, oh yeah, he's, he's an albino, that's it. Because they were like, what, what's, what's the other option? That white people and black people can have sex? That's ridiculous. He's an albino, that's it. It's a simple, done and done. And that was the world that I grew up in. That that was uh, what I had to navigate. And so that show was, was really just about that. And I guess South Africans connected with it because that was the world we were in. And I watched the documentary about you, which everyone should watch. And about a week and a half or so before that show, you got this phone call. And can you talk about what... You hadn't um, spoken to your mum or... I guess, had you spoken to your mom much in that period before? Because yeah. it had been such a difficult situation that you'd had to... And when you read it, you go, I don't know how else to handle it. Um, I guess we should explain what that is. But also how what that moment was like for you and then how it... I mean, were you going to quit this show or what was the decision to to push through? Well, the, the, the show wasn't really a priority for me. So I tell the story in the book, but I grew up in, a, in an extremely abusive household. My mother and father never married, and, uh, you know, partly due to the apartheid system, we were, you know, we drifted further and further away from my dad because we had to live further and further away from him. And then uh, at some point, my mom remarried, and the man that she married... Uh, while initially seeming like a great guy, you know, turned out to be a very abusive, alcoholic man. And we lived in a family of abuse, you know, a story that's unfortunately all too familiar for many people. And it started out gradually, you know, it was a slap here, it was a fight there, and then it escalated. 
And then at some point, we were just living in a home of terror, really. And, you know, alcohol was always that trigger that ignited, uh, you know, the, the flame of rage. And so one of the biggest reasons I wrote about this was not because it was easy, but because of something my mom said to me, and that was, she said, why is it that victims of abuse are the ones who feel the shame? Why is it that women and children who are in these situations are the ones who are scared to share or tell their stories? You know, why do we look at them or why do we get looked at as the people who should be pitied or, or ignored? And she was like, I'm, I'm not ashamed of my story. You know, she'd say to me, if anything, we should talk about this more because it's the perpetrators who should be shamed. You know, it's the man who's abusing his wife and his children who should be shamed. We should be speaking about it. We should be speaking about it in a manner that isn't uh, shameful, you know. And, and it happens all around us. Your best friend may not be telling you that she is getting abused by her man because it's seen as a, a shameful burden to bear. Your relationship is not as perfect as you would like it to be or you're a weak woman for some reason. And that was one of the biggest obstacles we had to overcome as a family and my mom said you know that that was a big challenge for us and the abuse culminated with uh, you know it, it ended in my mom being shot um, you know the, abu the abuse escalated and one day um, my mom was shot by my stepfather at the time and it was an extremely tough time because I mean I thought I'd lost her I, I thought that was that was the end And miraculously, she made it through. She was shot in the head, and um, she survived. And, you know, more important, she survived with all her faculties intact. And, um, and that was one of the, the biggest things I realized that I wanted to get involved in and talk about and work on was just getting rid of the stigma that is attached to victims as opposed to perpetrators of domestic abuse. Um, yeah, that's a really difficult part in the book, but I'm glad you share it. To maybe segue into something quite amusing after that, if we can get there, after um, that, your name, you're called Trevor. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and in South Africa, so many people have names that have significance. Yes. And I'm wondering if you can talk about this very special reason I thought why your mum named you your name and then if you could then talk about your friend Hitler who was an awesome dancer and how the context for names is so different there that's always a weird thing is that like that was like the weirdest longest segue but no, no it's just go weird, for it it's weird so As, as is common in, in most parts of the world, names have meanings. Uh, oftentimes in Western society, the, the meanings have become less and less important. But in, in African culture, a name still bears a lot of gravity. You know, parents often name their children uh, what they would like their children to be or what their child represents to them. And that was no different in my family. My mother's name is Patricia because you always had to have a Western name. You had to have the name that white people could pronounce. 
You know, so when colonizers first came to Africa, they asked the people, what were your name? And people had names like Kretamba, and people were like, all right, Patrick. Um, <laughs> and so everyone had to have the, you know, the, the, the white name. So my mom's white name was Patricia. Uh, her traditional name is Nombuiselo, which means she who gives back. And that's really, you know, became a self-fulfilling prophecy because everyone in the family had a name and they almost lived up to that name, you know. My, my mother's sister, who was the firstborn child, her name is Sbongile, which means we are grateful. She was the first child. Uh, my uh, uncle, who was the youngest born, his name is Velile, which means he who popped out of nowhere. <laughs> and he was really a surprise child for, for my grandmother and grandfather. And so a lot of the time, because these names seemed to hold so much gravity, my mom had a, a fear that I, too, would live up to my name. And so she made a decision to not give me an African name. She was like, I'm not going to give you a name because I don't want to put upon you what I feel may be the curse that defines your life. And so she said, I'm going to give you a name that I can't find any meaning for and that doesn't seem to exist in this world. Of Because like, Trevor is not a common name in South Africa. And she said, I'm going to call you Trevor. And then that, that was it. And I was just like, okay, your name is Trevor now. And one of the biggest reasons she did was because she, just, she wanted me to go out into the world and not have any preconceived notion of what I was supposed to be or what she intended me to be for herself. Um, ironically, when I went into the world, it was like, oh, Trevor's everywhere, you know, um, which helped because, I mean, it would be hard to host the Daily Show if my name was Kakamba. I don't think <laughs> people would relate as much. Um, but, but what was fun was, was, was learning about these stories when I started traveling. So the story of Hitler is an interesting one. I was in, I was in London, and I was doing a comedy show... And I was having dinner that night with a friend of mine, uh, comedian uh, Eddie Izzard. And we were chatting about life stories. And at some point, I said to him, I said, he said, what did you used to do when you were young? I said, oh, I used to be a DJ. And he was like, oh, that's fascinating. Where did you DJ? And I told him the story. And I said, yeah, and I used to DJ. And my friend Hitler and I would go to parties and we'd dance. And then he stopped me and he's like, I'm sorry, what did you say? And I said, my friend Hitler. And he was like, like what do you mean hit? Like, what do you mean Hitler? I was like, my friend, Hitler. And he's just like, that doesn't make sense. Who, how were you friends with Hitler? And I was like, because we like, hung out in the same neighborhood. And he's like, in Weimar, Germany? What are you talking about? And then he realized that, no, I had a friend whose name is like, is this a nickname? I said, no, this is government name. His name was Hitler. That's the name in his, on his ID. And he said to me, he's like, what kind of person would name their child Hitler? I said, well, Hitler's mom, clearly. And he couldn't understand it. And then I couldn't understand why he was so hung up on it. And, I mean, obviously, in hindsight, it all makes sense. But essentially, what we, we, we grappled through together was the idea that he, he was like, you can't name your child Hitler because Hitler's the most vile human being that has ever existed on the planet. What kind of parent would name their child this? And I said, well, you're taking for granted... The fact that Hitler is seen as the most vile person for everyone equally in the world. Because for Africans, Hitler is seen as, for many Africans, just one of the many evil men 
or many of just the powerful men who subjected many people to a rule of ty- a reign of tyranny. Because you must understand, the same way someone would say that, you know, how can you name your child Hitler, is the same way an African may say to you, how could you name your child Cecil? You know, Cecil John Rhodes was one of the worst slavers and murderers on the African continent. How can you name a scholarship after that man? You know, how did you name your kid Henry after all the the atrocities? How do you name your child Leopold? You know, because it's a weird name, but also because it was the king of Belgium who, you know, committed countless atrocities in the Congo. And it was such a strange concept to think about. It's not minimizing at all what, what happened, uh, you know, under Hitler's reign. But realizing, and that's when I realized, I was like, it's, it's, it's actually quite intense to think about it, but one of the things people go, they go, yeah, but Hitler was the worst. And I go, okay, why was he the worst in your world? And they say, because he killed six million Jews. And I go, that's, it, it, we all still grapple with that today. It's horrendous. And then I ask the question, I go, how many people did Cecil John Rhodes kill? How many Africans did Leopold kill? How many people were killed by these people? And the answer is always, well, scores, many. And I say, and that's one of the most painful things, is that the black lives weren't even counted. You know, they were never counted. There's mass graves, there are scores of black people dead, but they were never even counted, even in death. The only time black people were counted in death is when they were being traded as slaves, and that's because they were seen as a commodity. That's when people said, we lost this many black people on a ship but as a product, not as a person. And in going through that story, that, you know, the whole process of going through Hitler, I came to realize that Hitler, just like Henry, just like Leopold, just like any of these other names in Africa, is seen as the name of a powerful ruler. My grandfather, for instance, didn't know what Hitler was. He thought Hitler was an army tank because he would listen on the radio, you know, during the war, they would say... Hitler is winning against the Allies. And they would talk and tell all these stories of how powerful Hitler was. And my grandfather, I mean, no one was telling him this. He was just like, wow, this Hitler machine is really strong. And so in his head, he was like, yeah, Hitler is an army tank that the, the, the Germans have. And they're you know, riding it through Europe, taking over everything. And I guess that was, that was a, an interesting experience for me. And that's why I tell the story and try and, try and talk through it is because... Um, you realize how even in pain and suffering, even in these situations, you know, for a lot of Africans, and you see that now in America, that's what the conversation about Black Lives Matter is all about. It's that even at that lowest level, the acknowledgement even of a death doesn't seem to hold the same gravity as the life of another human being. In the documentary, one of your fellow comedians is talking and he says, imagine if we ever told someone with Jewish heritage to the, that they should forget the Holocaust and it was in the past. And yet a lot of the rhetoric around racism is that we dealt with that, it's in the past. Oh yeah, people always say that. You know? And I, I, it just, it feels like it doesn't add up. Like... I'm just, just, it was a day recently where you remember veterans in Australia and the saying is, lest we forget. And I thought how we need to use that phrase for what happened in America 
I mean, with slavery, what Australians did to our native people. Like, there is no, like, yeah, there, there we've is dealt a, with that and it, now it's over. One of the things I realized, uh, and, you know, my friend Neil Brennan has had one of the funniest jokes about it. He, he, said, um, he said, I think that when white people see a black person approaching and they cross the street, they're not crossing because they're afraid of being mugged. They're crossing because they're afraid of facing their guilt, you know. And I found that so powerful and funny at the same time because a lot of the time that is why you don't want to talk about it. That is why most people don't want to have the conversations because they go, all right, it's, it's done. I wasn't even involved. That was my parents. And it's like, yeah, yeah, but can we acknowledge that this happened? And people go like, yeah, but I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't do slavery. Why should I have to apologize for it? And it's like, it's not about apologizing. It's about acknowledging that you are where you are because of ill-gotten gains. And, you know, unfortunately, those conversations devolve so quickly because then someone returns and says, well, I'm poor. I'm a poor white person. How can you say that I've benefited anything? And you say, you go, yes, but you being poor on that level, the way I always try and explain it to people is I say, think of it like this. It's like saying you are poor on a really nice airplane you are flying on let's say american airlines and you have a really bad seat but it's on american airlines and there's someone else who's a black person and even if they've got first class they're on spirit airlines (laughs) there's a big gap we're both flying both have a ticket but your lowest is not the lowest and that's the thing i think sometimes people don't understand and more importantly just because you're not exercising your privilege does not mean it does not exist. That's another thing people seem to forget. They go like, oh, but look at me, I'm poor. I'm like, yeah, but if I gave you the right suits and sent you out there, there's a good chance you could get your life together a lot quicker than somebody who is a different race. And that was really what what the stories are. And it's a universal theme. It happens in South Africa as well. You know, we have only had democracy for, what, 23, 24 years maybe? And even in South Africa, there are people going, all right, it's time to move on now. Come on, it's over. We've, had, we've been free for 20, 20 odd years. And, you know, and, and in America, you hear people saying the same thing. They go, Jim Crow is done. Come on. What are the... And you go, yeah, but now how do you move back from that? You know, how do I get back to that place? How do communities get back to being on level footing? And a lot of the time, unfortunately, we know that the conversations for a lot of people, when they hear equality what they're hearing is the oppression of themselves. And that's a sad state for, it to, for us to be in. But I think in, in telling these stories from another country, I hope that sometimes people won't have that block when understanding it because it's, it's not about you. A lot of the time it's easier to handle a, a situation when it's not about you. You're like, yeah, those, those people are really bad. Those people over there in South Africa are really bad. But then you maybe take a moment to go, oh, is that how we look? Is that how it feels? And, and uh, I guess that's how the stories connect to the world for me. In their specificity, you find that the theme can be much broader than you originally thought. I'm getting the signal that, it's, that we're at time. But we do have, um, we have room for a couple of questions, so formulate them. And just on what you were saying, there's a brilliant story in the book, which you guys will get afterwards, the cookie, the cookies and your grandma speak to how you understand your grandma, how within, I mean, how you were treated differently to your cousins. 
And I think, I mean, it's a line worth repeating, if you don't mind, but it was so powerful. And, and it says, um, growing up the way I did, I learned how easy it, was, it is for white people to get comfortable with a system that awards them all the perks. I could champion racial justice in, my, in our home, or I could enjoy granny's cookies. And I went with the cookies. Yeah. And that's, it was just that's such essentially an what it was. I, I even acknowledge it in my life. And that's the thing is oftentimes people don't realize that the acknowledgement is in many ways one of the most liberating conversations you can have. Acknowledging your privilege as a man, acknowledging your privilege uh, you know, as a white person. I acknowledge that even in my little world, my tiny little world, I came to realize that my cousins were treated dif- differently to me. Even though we were all children, grandchildren, I was treated differently by my own grandmother because the country told her that she couldn't punish me because I was superior to her according to our racial standings. And so my cousins were often beaten. We were, we'd get into trouble all the time. They would all get the, the spankings, you know, and I wasn't spanked because my grandmother was like, I, I, can't hit, I can't hit a person who's light-skinned. And I could have easily stood up and said, hey, I think I should be, you know beaten just like everybody else but I was like no this is pretty sweet this is a sweet deal you know I don't get punished by the law the same way that my black cousins do I'm I'm gonna take it and uh, it's sad but that's unfortunately the same logic that we apply today and what makes it even worse is that people won't even acknowledge Mm. that they are the favorite grandchild well everyone's lining up and I could go on but I think we should open it up to a question. Great. Um, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure how long you've lived here, actually. But given you've been in the public eye for the last year plus now, how is the transition from South Africa to this new emerging America? I've lived in um, the U.S. I would say. So I lived in in Pasadena in California for two years. That was 2010 to 2012. I've now lived here for almost two years in New York. Been visiting on and off, uh, you know, for almost a decade. Um, Surprisingly, America has always been one of the countries where I feel most comfortable because I understand most of the dynamics. South Africa and America are, you know, are like alternate universes but still mirror reflections of each other. We both have uh, a history fraught with racial divides and oppression of of black people. We both have a disconnect in how uh, people acknowledge that. We're both faced with, uh, you know, uh, a schism in in the conversations that I had today. Uh, We both had a first black president. That was exciting. Um, But one of the, the biggest advantages I feel we have in South Africa is we had what we call the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And that was after power shifted from the minority to the black majority. We spent a good two weeks where police, who were part of the oppressive states, came forward and they confessed to any crimes they had committed while serving in the police force, killing black people that they knew they shouldn't have, lying in police reports, making people disappear. And this was done under the condition that they would receive immunity because 
the leaders in the country realized more important uh, for most people than getting uh, retribution was getting an honest understanding and an acknowledgement of the crimes that were perpetrated against the black people in the country. And we had to sit through that, and it was one of the most painful times I remember in the country, every night sitting with my parents, everyone crying and watching the television, just people telling you all the heinous crimes they had committed. It wasn't secondhand, it wasn't a report, it was a person telling you how they strung a person up by their neck, how they burned somebody alive, how they got their dogs uh, to tear them uh, to shreds. And what that did for us was, although it didn't completely extinguish the flyer, the, you know, the, the, the fires, what it did was it, it at least gave people a sense that they could never be called crazy, they could never be denied the, the ability to feel angry because it was real. And that's one thing that I feel was sorely lacking in America. There's never been a moment of reconciliation. There's never been a moment of truth. You know, there's people who still ask in this country, oh, is slavery that bad? I mean, 2016, you had news anchors saying, oh, I mean, but slaves at the White House, they had a meal, you know, they, they had a good life. It's not like the worst life. They were still, and you're just like, did you just say that? In 2016, there are still people going, was slavery that bad? And that's because the country never had a reckoning. You have history textbooks that completely omit the true nature of what slavery was, you have a nation that ignores its history. And when you do that, as we've learned, you are most likely to repeat it or at least repeat forms of that instead of acknowledging where you've come from. And that's in South Africa, we had truth and reconciliation. In Germany, one thing I admire when I go there is nobody in that country minimizes what happened to the Jews. There is nobody, no child who moves through the school system who does not know the shame that German history bears. And that is something that you can feel is completely, you know, lacking in America. There are people who just go, ah, I don't know how true that is. I don't know if that's real. Ah, but black people also traded slaves in Africa. That's, I, that's the same thing, right? And you're like, okay, if you, if you want to see it that way, see it that way. But until that is acknowledged until people come forward and say, hey, you know, that law and order thing that we ran during Nixon's campaign, that was actually dog whistle racism. When people, until people come forward and explain how redlining and Jim Crow was designed to oppress black people, then there will never be a balance. There will always be a situation where some who are misinformed say that black people are just prone to criminality. They will never talk about how communities suffer from over-policing and under-policing at the same time. You know, they will never talk about how the system has been rigged in that direction. So, strangely enough, I find America as a place I understand. The only difference is there's just one little path that we took in a, in a slightly different way. And obviously, black people are the majority, and so maybe there was more, you know, there was more impetus for us to go through that uh, reconciliation commission than there is here. So hard to choose. Um, how about up there? Why did you choose comedy? Why did I choose comedy? I didn't choose comedy. I feel like comedy chose me. Uh, comedy is a, is, a, is a coping mechanism. You know, uh, being a professional comedian, I guess, is applying that coping mechanism uh, at will. 
but we all use comedy in, in the same way. We all use humor as a tool to ha- help us cope. I always think of comedy as the anesthesia of the mind, you know, and that was one thing that we had regardless of any pain or suffering we were in, we could always laugh, you know, and that's one thing you'll find across cultures, no matter how much suffering there is, no matter how much pain there is, a laugh manages to permeate all of that and create a feeling, even if it's just for a moment, of relief. Um, I remember one of the first times I, I, I remember as a child understanding how powerful comedy was. I was with my grandfather at a, uh, a protest rally in South Africa, and we were walking through the streets, and there was a policeman, and he was on a horse, and he had a bit, uh, you know, a baton, and you knew there was always a chance you were going to get beaten by the police. It was just normal. And this policeman was moving people along, and he looked over at my grandmother, and he said, move, move over, move over. And my grandfather was a really boisterous man, really one of the funniest people I ever met. And he turned, and he looked at this policeman, and he, this white policeman on his horse, and my grandfather said, he said, master, master, can I ask you a question? And the policeman said, what? What? What do you want? And he, he said, master. I want to know something from you. And now, that weekend, uh, there was a a horse race in South Africa, uh, similar to our Kentucky Derby. And the winner of that horse, uh, the the winner of that race, the the, the horse was on the front page, and the president was there with the horse, and he was kissing the horse, right? Celebrating the, the, the horse's victory. And so my grandfather said to the policeman, he said, Master, why is it that your president can kiss a horse? but he refuses to kiss my sister. And the policeman's eyes, like his eyes just went wide. And he was like, what? He said, I don't know. (laughs) And my grandfather looked at him, he said, because you haven't seen my sister. (laughs) And that was such a powerful moment for me because the policeman, he burst out laughing And I'd never seen that in my life. I had never seen a black person and a white person laughing together. I had never seen a moment like that. And I didn't know what had happened as a kid. I remembered everything word for word, but I didn't understand what had happened. I was like, I don't understand because my grandfather's sister, I don't get what this means. (laughs) But it was a genius joke. I mean, I don't even know how my grandfather formulated it. I mean, the, the premise of it is, how can a man be so racist that he will kiss a beast before he kisses another human being who happens to be of another race? And the policeman, clearly working under that premise, replied. But then the, the bait and switch, the turn was, from my grandfather's perspective, it's not racism. It's because of how hideous his sister looks. And that was just phenomenal. But to see that in that moment, I realized, and that's why I say comedy chose me, because it was in my family, it was in my blood, my mother, my grandfather. We always used it as a tool to get us out of the trickiest and stickiest situations. Okay, um, up the back there, sir. Sorry, uh, so I'm curious how your, um, your approach to tone down? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, look, when it comes to comedy and doing the Daily Show, one of the one of the most important things I came to learn, and that was, you know, thanks to to John Stewart and his mentorship, was 
how important it was to to be myself on the show, how important it was to tackle uh, issues that I felt personally needed to be spoken about. That's what John Stewart said. He said to me, "This show needs to be the vision of the host." You know, he said, "I had my vision. There were things I wanted to speak about. You need to speak about what you need to speak about. That's why the show must change because my show is done." And uh, when I'm when I'm on the show, the same as I do in my stand-up, it's it's who I am. It's how I feel. You know, in terms of ratings, I don't know, and I'm glad I don't know. It, it would be horrible to know immediately that that works or doesn't work or that's how people feel because then I would try and do that to elicit that response. I don't think I would be immune uh, from wanting that. So I don't know. I can only make the best show that I can make and make the show that I feel needs to be made. With regards to do people complain sometimes about racial things, they actually do. One of the, the most interesting conversations I had was someone who said to me, he said, hey, man, you know, I just feel like the Daily Show, all you guys talk about these days is Donald Trump and police shootings. And when he said this to me, I, I, I paused for a moment and I thought, and I went, I hear what you're saying when it comes to Donald Trump, because unfortunately he has been pervasive in the news. No one could escape him. And maybe in a show of 160 episodes, we had done at least 120 that mentioned him in some way, shape, or form. But in that same time period, we had only done five shows that spoke about police shootings or racial injustice in America. And I was shocked that in this person's mind, hearing about Donald Trump 120 times was as nauseating and irritating as hearing about black people being oppressed five times. And I came to understand how difficult it is. I came to understand because I I realized that in America, it's seen as a black problem, not an American problem. It's not Americans being shot, it's black people being shot. You know, it's black issues, it's black on black crime. There's no white on white crime, even though statistics have shown that people murder the people around them. No one says white on white crime. Everything is isolated. It is seen as an offset, as an offshoot of mainstream society. And I think what gets frustrating is when you realize that when black excellence is achieved, it is adopted and separated from the black experience. So hip-hop is no longer black music. It's just hip-hop. You know, dreadlocks or not. No, it's just dreads. It's just style. It's just baggy pants. It's like if anything is excellent in that, we'll take it out and apply it to our culture. And that's what people don't understand about cultural appropriation. It's not about, oh, you use my culture and I don't want you to use it. It's not about that. It's about you pick and choose which elements of my culture you would like and then you continue to condemn the remaining ones. So I I came to realize I cannot live in a world where I'm afraid to talk about these things because they are happening and they are real. So if a person says to me, I'm sick and tired of having conversations around race, I'm like, well, then, you know, that's, that's up to you. But I will find ways to keep talking about it. I'll find ways to keep engaging because it's something that's not going away and it's uh, something that you need to keep acknowledging because it is an American problem, not a black problem. Okay, one more. The lady up the very back. Oh, guys, I feel so bad to have to cut you off. But if we could get the mic up there. Hello. Hello. Um, I 
was just wondering, uh, it seems to myself and a lot of my friends that this is really the first time in our current generation that there's a really obvious sort of us and them feeling after a time in our country where we thought it wasn't that way. Yeah. Um, I think after this week of, you know, crying and shock subsides, the next step in the conversation has been how. So as someone who's been through um, a lifetime and a culture of such a great divide, um, how do we address these conversations? So currently my social media feeds are pictures of faces so bashed in that it's hard to look at um, because they were preyed upon for being gay or swastikas in Philadelphia or all of this. How do we start conversations with people unlike ourselves? I think the shock came from... Most people around us, as you mentioned, are like ourselves. And yes, we, yes. And so do you have any advice for these conversations and how to reach across? I, I will say this. This, this is a, a tough thing to say, and I hope it is not taken in the wrong way. But I do feel like the first step in moving forwards is looking in the mirror. It feels like for many black Americans, this election was just another Tuesday because unfortunately what Donald Trump said almost does ring true. How much worse can it get? It wasn't just Donald Trump that said it. It was even ISIS that said that, which I found ridiculous and crazy. ISIS sent a letter out and said, hey, black Americans in Ferguson, we see what's happening to you. Join us and we will come help you. And I was like, that is insane that ISIS is going yo, we can see what's happening. I feel like in order for us to move forward, it's tough, but we have to have conversations with ourselves. And those conversations have to be, what do we hope to achieve? What are we trying to achieve? Uh, Because even within the us and them, there are micro us's and them's. You know, uh, what we need to do is figure out this us that is shocked and not impressed by the Donald Trump results We've also got to patch up our things because if we're not careful, you'll focus so much on that enemy and when it goes away, you'll come to realize all the fissures and cracks that exist in this us-ness that haven't been resolved. I do think across the board, though, there are so many small elements that we have to address, but the most important thing is it's, it's, it's tough and people don't always want to admit it, but we're all trying to get to the same place. For most people, for most people, they're doing what they think is right according to their point of view. Now, there are obviously elements, like you're saying, the people who are bashing faces in, who have seen the election of Donald Trump as free reign. They've seen this as an indication, obviously due to his rhetoric and the people he surrounds himself with, that this is now their time to reclaim their hateful place in America. What we must be careful of, though, is we must be careful that we don't condemn all of them, because it's not just an us and them. There is nuance. And America and the world are really, we're really bad at exploring nuance. It's not just us and them. Uh, you know, the real us is, is all of us. And what we need to look at is how to communicate more effectively. How do we find a way to bridge the gaps and communicate? And it's tough because sometimes you have to communicate from the place of being oppressed, which requires sometimes a a saint-like ability. You know, Mahatma Gandhi had that when he was being beaten. Martin Luther King had that. 
where he was like, we're just going to keep on rising up. We're going to dress good. We're going to speak politely. We're going to get to these people in a different way. And the question now is, it's easy for us to go, we look down on the them, we judge the them, but instead of hating, if you try and empathize, what, what is the answer that you come to? And that doesn't mean normalizing. That doesn't mean condoning. That doesn't mean living in a world where we don't fight against those things. Uh, but we, we have to be careful that it is not an us and them because it, it, it isn't really. The illusion is that it's an us and them. Uh, but the truth is it's a hungry person in one place or it's even a hateful person in one place or a person who feels afraid in another place. You know, someone who goes, ISIS is my priority. The economy is my priority. And, you know, I've, I've always seen and we see through history, when people are afraid and hungry, you can get them to do the most despicable things. Oftentimes it's good people doing horrible, heinous things to other humans because they feel that they themselves are threatened at the core. So if you see them as humans, try and put yourself in their shoes. And I don't think there is one answer. That's the, that's the biggest thing is let's not try and make it one answer because it's not one answer. Let's apply ourselves to every single piece of the answer and then maybe we can move forward. But it really has to start this way first. I've had to do it with myself. I know friends of mine have had to do it where they tell me. Friends of mine who are liberal go, my parent voted for Trump and I can't expect it. A friend of mine who's an immigrant and he says his father voted for Trump. A friend of mine who's black and he says his brother voted for Trump. Then you come to realize that us and them is not as clear as you think it is. And if we're not careful in being blinded by the pain of seeing those images, we will create an us and them that didn't exist and become the them that we were trying to escape in the first place. It's very complicated, but it's just one day at a time, one smile at a time, one hug at a time, uh, but constantly remaining vigilant, uh, starting with yourself. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. The book is every... I just said when we came, every human in the world should read this book. It's incredible. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for being so honest and open with us. Thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for coming out. I appreciate you. Thank you. For more about this interview and about Lit Up in general, visit us at thelitupshow.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at LitUpShow. And of course, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.